This Parsha podcast is dedicated in loving memory and Le'ilu Nishmas, my dear friend and study partner, David Gedalia Ben Ephraim, Dr. David Jenikov, a blessed memory. Dr. Jenikov was a dear personal friend of mine. I had the great fortune of studying with him every week. He was a stalwart supporter of Torch. He was a dedicated listener of the Parsha podcast and all the other podcasts that we do over here. And he sadly passed away tragically and shockingly in a car accident a few days ago. Our Parsha begins with the death, the eulogy, and the burial of Sarah. Our Parsha contains the first eulogy in the Torah, and I wanted to dedicate this Parsha podcast to a eulogy of my dear friend, David Jenikov. I want to divide this into two parts. I want to start off by speaking about the subject of eulogies in general, like what's the history of eulogies in our literature, what's the meaning behind it, what's the purpose of it, like what, what are we supposed to take away from it, what's the objective of a eulogy. And then in part two, I want to talk about David and his life and his incredible qualities and attributes, and try to find something that we could all take as a lesson from his illustrious life. Now, we have a eulogy in our parsha with Sarah. The Torah does not tell us the content of the eulogy that Abraham gave for Sarah. The Midrash fills us in. The Midrash tells us that Abraham's eulogy of Sarah consisted of chapter 31 of Proverbs, Ashes Chayel, a woman of valor. If you have some time, I would encourage you to take a look at the Midrash. The Midrash goes to the chapter of Proverbs verse by verse and shows us how each verse relates to Sarah. But of course, Sarah is not the only eulogy that we receive in the Torah. At the end of the book of Genesis, chapter 50, we read about a very lengthy and elaborate eulogy and bewailing of Jacob. The verse tells us that in Egypt, they mourned Jacob for 70 days. And then after they brought Jacob to Israel, to the land of Canaan, there were seven days of mourning in a place called Goren Ha'atad. And the Talmud describes that all the kings, 36 different kings, participated in the seven-day eulogy of Jacob, and they all placed their crowns on top of Jacob's coffin. And the commentaries tell us that a eulogy is not this monolithic thing. There are nine different types of eulogy, and the eulogy of Jacob incorporated all different types of eulogies. Later on in the Torah, read about Aaron when he passed away. The nation bewailed him for 30 days. The men and the women, when Moshe died, he was also bewailed. He was also mourned for 30 days. But with Moshe, it was just the men. Rashi tells us that there's a difference. Aaron was so beloved by all because he was a peacemaker between husband and wife. And therefore, the women also mourned Aaron. Whereas with Moshe... It was just the men. But this idea of 30 days of mourning became a staple in Jewish life for the mourning of a giant. 
And even more than a thousand years later, when Rabbi Judah the Prince died, he requested to not be mourned and eulogized for more than 30 days. He thought it would be inappropriate for him to receive a more elaborate and extended eulogy than Moshe. If Moshe was only mourned and eulogized for 30 days, then Rabbi Judah the Prince should not be mourned and eulogized for more than 30 days. But ultimately, he was eulogized for 30 days, day and night, says the Talmud. And from that point forward, either they eulogized him by day for the rest of the year and they studied at night, or they eulogized him at night and they studied by day for the rest of the year. Ultimately, he was actually eulogized for 12 months. So obviously, there's a lot of emphasis in our philosophy and our religion about about eulogizing someone who passed, especially a special person. And it raises a basic question, you know, what's the, what's the point of it? We, we were nuanced in it. We have nine different types of, of eulogy. There's all kinds of laws that Talmud tells us. For example, Talmud says that eulogizing is such an important thing, it even overrides certain mitzvahs. So Talmud says, well, if, if it's time to recite the Shema, you stop, you pause the eulogy to say the Shema, if it's the right time to say the Shema. But if it's time to pray, you just continue with the eulogy. The eulogy is able to override prayer. So, of course, this raises a question. What's, why is it so important? What's the benefit of a eulogy? What's the utility of a eulogy? Why is there such significance accorded, attributed to it in our religion? And there's another question. When when Miriam, Moshe and Aaron's older sister, when she passed away, so her death coincided with the cessation of the water from the well. For 40 years in the wilderness, the nation was drinking water that had been coming out of a rock. And it was given to the nation in the merit of Miriam. She was such a righteous woman that this miracle was bestowed upon the nation in her merit. And therefore, when she passed, the well ceased as well. The well stopped as well. And the commentaries tell us something really interesting and really surprising. When Aaron died, when Moshe died, they were mourned and eulogized properly. But when Miriam died, she was not sufficiently eulogized and that's why and that's why the well ceased had she been sufficiently eulogized the well would not have stopped i think this brings us to the next question we need to ponder about the whole subject of eulogies in general the sages tell us that because miriam was eulogized insufficiently that's why the water stopped Evidently, had she been eulogized properly or sufficiently, the water would not have stopped. The power of a eulogy is such that it would have succeeded in perpetuating the well of Miriam, the wellspring of Miriam, even after its benefactor had passed. This should really get our attention. Why would the counterfactual eulogy of Miriam why would that have extended the well that came in her merit? 
So what's the purpose of a eulogy? Now, when we examine the sources, we find a variety of different answers. On a most basic level, we know and we see many sources to this effect. That being around the subject of human mortality, being around the whole notion of our life over here being temporary, that subject can be very productive. You know, we're here for a finite amount of time, but we don't always think about the fact that our time here, our clock is ticking, and we don't know when it's going to expire and when our, our opportunities in this world are going away. We don't know. Every once in a while, we encounter the harsh and bitter and stinging reality that the people we love and the people that we look up to and the people that we admire are not with us anymore. And of course, we know their soul is still alive and it's their body and, and the body will be resurrected. We know that, but still, they're not around us anymore. And that that shakes us up. It's a little terrifying, of course. But our sages tell us, it is productive. The verse in Scripture tells us, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of festivities. You see festivities, and you see joy and revelry, and it's exciting. It's better to go to a place where there's sadness and melancholy and depression and mourning and bewailing and crying? Why? Because this is the end of all of humanity. Everyone ends up eventually in that coffin. And the person who is still alive can take this message to heart. When you experience the harsh reality of the temporality of our life over here, you get an opportunity to think about what really matters. If you're by a funeral and someone that you know and you love and you were close with and you had a relationship with, they're being talked about by their friends, by their family. It should make you remember the fact that one day you're going to be there. And what are they going to say by my funeral? Will I live up to my potential? Will I have wonderful things being said about me like is being said about this person? Am I going to maximize the gifts that the Almighty gave me like this person did? So one of the reasons why we have eulogies is that in general, to participate in a funeral and all the accompanying events, the mourning, the shiva, all that makes us remember that our time here is finite. It's limited. We won't be here forever. Of course, we don't know when that moment is that we're going to be ushered before the heavenly tribunal. We don't know. And therefore, we ought to cherish every moment, every second. We have an opportunity. You're alive. It's the greatest gift of all. You can do mitzvos. You can elevate yourself. You can become more of a soul. You can become closer to the Almighty. And once you pass, you no longer have that opportunity. And when you think about that, it can spur you, it can encourage you, it can be a catalyst for you to elevate yourself. A lot of us have dreams, we have ambitions, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to actualize our potential. But sometimes we procrastinate, we push things off, I'll get to it eventually, 
when you see a harsh reality of someone who no longer has this leash, no longer has this opportunity, it reminds you that if you're going to do something, don't wait. Don't push off your dreams. Don't wait for your potential that the Almighty gave you and expects you to develop. Don't wait for that to spontaneously emerge. Do what you can to bring it to fruition. As Hillel tells us, If not now, when? Don't say when I get the time, I'm going to do what the Almighty wants of me. How do you know that you'll have more time? The Mishnah tells us to repent a day before we die. Well, when's that? To be today? To be tomorrow? We don't know. But we don't think in those terms most of the time. You know, we're away from it. We're shielded from it. We're insulated from it. And you participate in a funeral and you listen to eulogies. You think about what a person lived for, what they valued, what, the, what they prioritized, what were their life's accomplishments, what were the behaviors that they embodied, what are the qualities that they earned. When you experience that, it can help the participants to take their life more seriously. So on a basic level, the reason why we have eulogies is for the benefits of the of the participants. They get a touch point with their own mortality, and that's a very beneficial reminder. The Talmud tells us that when we remember the fact that we're going to die, it can help a person to avoid making any mistakes. Most of our mistakes, says the Talmud, most of our spiritual blunders can be attributed to short-term thinking, to forget about the fact that we're souls and we have an eternal life, and to try to build towards that legacy. We forget about that. A eulogy helps ground us and and, and kind of bring us spiritual sobriety. I will say, I'm talking more about David in a little bit, but a mutual friend of ours told me that the day before he passed, they were having a very deep and intimate conversation. The deepest conversations that they've had in their entire life. And it was an emotional conversation and it was a spiritual conversation. And it was a conversation that I believe would qualify for what our sages tell us, to repent the day before you die. And it just happens. The Almighty works, of course, in ways that are unfathomable to us sometimes. It seems, just from what I wasn't, I wasn't privy to the conversation, but from what I heard about it, this was a conversation that definitely qualified as repentance the day before you pass. But again, talking about eulogies in general, we have an idea as to why the whole institution of a eulogy is found, why it's so emphasized. It's important to think about our own mortality. But of course, our sages added some more reasons why we eulogize. For one, they tell us that it it bestows honor upon the deceased. You talk about their qualities, you talk about their accomplishments, you talk about the good character, you talk about the mitzvahs that they did, that brings them honor. And it also encourages other people to try to emulate them. 
But one of the most profound ideas, which is a little bit of an expansion of, of this idea, it comes courtesy of the Gona Vilna. And this, to me, is a game changer. This is one of those ideas that really changes the whole subject completely. When someone passes, so they leave, of course, a void. And their family and their friends and their acquaintances, they feel that. But of course, every person on their level, it affects everyone in the whole world. All of humanity is affected. But on a spiritual level, that void is much more palpable. When someone does a mitzvah, when someone's righteous, when someone's good, of course it affects their soul, but it affects the souls of everyone around them. It affects the souls, of course, of their, their family and their community and their city and their country and the whole world. We talked about this idea a couple of weeks ago in the Parsha podcast, how a person's behavior can affect the kind of the spiritual environment that exists around them. When someone's righteous, they contribute with their qualities and with their talents and with their attributes to the world. And they serve as a positive impact to the world. And when they depart, so of course, the fact that they're not here physically, that causes a void. But the fact that they're not here spiritually also causes a void. We had someone who did so many mitzvos, someone who was such a righteous person, such a kind person, such a, such a good person. They had such a positive impact on the world in a spiritual sense. And now they're in heaven, their soul has departed, and they can no longer do any mitzvos. So there's a spiritual void present as well. And of course, the greater the person was in their lifetime, the more righteous, the more kind, the more, the more special the person who passed was, the larger and more cavernous the void that they leave behind. So the suffering is felt by everyone, really. Because on a spiritual sense, we lost an asset, a spiritual asset that held us up, that elevated us. What's going to be? What's going to be with the world? What's going to fill this void? How will we recover? Is there any way for us to maintain our spiritual standing after we lost a luminary? Says the Gona Vilna, that is the purpose of a eulogy. The purpose of a eulogy is to, is to identify to, to codify, to, to crystallize what were the qualities of this person. Once you organize that, you understand who this person was and what they stood for spiritually, and you express that to the people, and you impress upon the people the value of the person that they lost, and you encourage them to adopt those qualities well, then it's almost like the person hasn't passed on a certain sense, in a, in a certain spiritual level. Because if everyone adopts the qualities that the person had, the world maintains, so to speak, its equilibrium. And that creates a certain degree of comfort, of, of, of bereavement to the world and to the family to say, even though we lost this person, but we're going to do what we can to perpetuate who they were and what they stood for. What happens if the qualities, if the attributes of the deceased are adopted by those who remain alive? 
the world maintains its stability. Of course, the void is still there. But the person on a spiritual level, what they stood for, what they lived for, to a certain extent, because those qualities are adopted by the listeners, by the recipients of the eulogy, what they lived for spiritually actually continues to be present in this world vicariously through all those who were inspired to adopt their qualities. There was a really remarkable woman in our history, one of the most remarkable women, one of the seven prophetesses of the Jewish people, a woman of indomitable faith and strength, a woman whose tenacity and unwavering belief in the future of the Jewish people contributed, as the Talmud tells us, to the birth and development of Moshe and of the nation, Moshe's big sister, Miriam. She was one of the greats. She was one of the giants. And in her merit, the well that emitted water from the rock was given to the Jewish people. And when she passed, the merit went away. And the nation dropped and the well stopped. But why? Why did it stop? Because it only came in her merit. And she wasn't properly eulogized. Had she been properly eulogized, the well would have remained. Now we know why. If she was eulogized properly, those who heard the eulogy would have adopted her qualities and they would have upheld her righteousness. And therefore, even though Miriam would not be around us, her qualities and her attributes and her greatness would have endured through those listeners of her eulogy and the well that came in her merit would have continued in her merit as now fulfilled by the listeners of the eulogy. And again, on some degree, if someone is eulogized properly, it's as if they're still around. So this is, of course, a deep insight into the meaning of a eulogy. And it's much more demanding because it's not just let's learn about this person. Let's really, really study this person and see what they stood for, what their qualities were, and why were they so special, and see what we can do to adopt that. And of course, it, it, it demands of us to, to truly absorb the lessons and the qualities and think about how we can, in some way, integrate and assimilate those qualities into our life. But I think that with this understanding... I want to talk about my friend David, David Gedalia ben Ephraim. Now, I know in the podcast, a lot of y'all don't know who he was. So I'm going to try to give you a little character sketch of him. But even if you don't know who he was, you could still be inspired by him. You could still be inspired by, by his life and his hard work and his accomplishments and his qualities, his sterling qualities, and hopefully... We can all be inspired to mimic them in some way and elevate ourselves and take on, so to speak, some of the greatness that he had and in some degree, in some capacity, do something to perpetuate the wonderful qualities that he embodied. It's hard to take it all, of course. Uh, he was such a prince of a man, such a gem. And as we'll talk more, he, he did so much. And he stood for so much. It's really hard for one person to say, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fill those shoes myself. But 
everyone could pick up something. And I'm, I'm going to make a suggestion at the end as to something that we could all adopt to go along his path. And the Talmud talks about when the great sages passed, they would take the qualities of the great sage and divide it up amongst the students. So there's this precedent of this idea. You don't have to undertake to be a perfect a perfect reenactment, a perfect representation of a person, but at least let's take on something. So when you want to speak about someone like a David Janikov, how do you how do you capture such a man? How do you capture the greatness and the specialness of such a person? So we could talk about his brilliance and he, he was a genius, not just a genius in potential, but like everything that he did in his life, he, he utilized his potential and he had, he had curiosity and he had thirst for knowledge. You know, I was his study partner and yeah, I know he also listened to the podcast. So I got to make sure if you're going to come study Torah with David Jenikov, you got to make sure that you're up to speed. You're up to snuff. He was a sharp listener to the podcast. If there's some sort of logical flaw in the reasoning, he would let you know because he would he would spot it and he would tell you about it. And if this is not limited, of course, to Torah, in whatever field, when we were study partners and any subject that came up in our discussion, any subject that's in the news, he knew all about it. And he's able to speak eloquently about it. He had this incredibly vast reservoir of knowledge in basically any fathomable field. But not only that, you know, there's some people that they, they know a lot, but they have a hard time kind of relating it to the lay people. He had this unique ability to grasp on a deep level complicated subjects, but also had a way of explicating it, of explaining it to a, a novice. You know, he, I actually thanked him in my book, in the acknowledgement section, because he read I don't know if you read the whole thing, but you read vast parts of it and all kinds of suggestions. Even though I, I, I reread the book 20 times before I, I hit publish, found all kinds of typos and, and mistakes. Maybe you shouldn't say it like this, say it like that. He was a brilliant person and a genius. And we could talk about that. We could talk about his career successes that were absolutely off the charts. He was a gifted craniofacial surgeon, absolute top of his field. He was actually part of the surgery team that did the first operation of separating conjoined twins. It was like a 30-hour or even more, very, very long surgery. And we talk about his care and his his um, compassion and skill as a physician and a surgeon. We could talk about his drive and ambition. He had just un- uncommon drive and ambition and energy. He was always innovating, always taking on these world-altering projects. He started off as a as a surgeon, and he continued that. But he got, got involved in other areas of medicine, biotech. He was always working on all kinds of solutions. I remember there was a time that we were studying, and he had some uh, cancer treatment, and they were monitoring some patients that had taken this this new drug. I don't know if it was a drug or some sort of treatment. And every week we would talk about, well, how's the patient doing? Are they still alive? But working in all kinds of fields, ALS, various cancer treatments, drugs that would vastly improve the outcomes for all kinds of conditions. And he was able to work simultaneously in all kinds of different fields all at once. And he made, he made wildly ambitious goals for himself and he pulled them all off. You know, his son Matthew said by the funeral, 
He said that he, he, he was talking about how, how he would make a list of all the things he wanted to do, make a list, like a to-do list, and then just check him off. Even when he was a, he was a teenager, he set out these very ambitious goals and he met and exceeded those goals. But Matthew said that he told him that I, I set out, I don't, I don't want to misquote him, something to the effect of he set out to do everything and he did it all. Everything he wanted to do that he, he did. He was up every day at four, walking the dog. He would listen to his favorite podcast, of course, but he would pull in a full day of work before most of us woke up. He had this great engine, accomplishing, doing, building energy, maximizing his time judiciously, accomplishing an incredible amount in his lifetime. So we could talk about that. We could talk about his incredible ambition. Of course, his incredible generosity. He was a, a fantastic athlete as well, state wrestling champ in high school, an Ironman triathlete, there's a lot of different angles that we could talk about. But I was thinking of the following angle to try to capture maybe the, the, the greatest, it's hard for me to say, but what I see as one of his, his really crowning achievements or his crowning qualities. So I thought of the Mishnah in Perkei Avos, in chapter two of Ethics of Our Fathers. It's talking about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. He was the great sage of the Jewish people in the first century of the Common Era. And he had five primary students, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yehoshua, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Shimon, and Rabbi Elazar. And the Mishnah says that he tasked his five primary students to go find what is the best, most sterling quality that a person should cleave to in their life? What's the best quality of them all? And the students went to investigate. And Rabbi Eliezer comes back and says, an eye in tova, having a good eye, that's the number one quality. And Rabbi Yeshua says, to be a chaver tov, to be a good chaver, a good friend, that's the most important quality. And Rabbi Yossi says, to be a shachin tov, a good neighbor, that's the most important quality. And Rabbi Shimon says, haroes anola, to see the future, to anticipate, to intuit the future. And finally, Rabbi Elazar says, to have a lev tov, a good heart. So the great rabbi said, Rabbi Elazar, who said that the most important quality is to have a good heart, I think he's right. Because included in a good heart are all the other things. You have a good heart, you have everything. All the five Students arrived at their own conclusion. Good eye, good friend, good neighbor. Seeing the future. But the best quality, the one that incorporates all the other sterling qualities, is to have a good heart. And thinking about David, and thinking about what everyone was saying about him in the funeral, this is David Janikov. He had a good heart. He, in his heart, he, he saw good in other people. He saw the potential in other people. He was an overachiever. And he wanted other people to flourish as well. So he could be tough. He could be exacting. But it's because he had the vision to see other people flourish and blossom. He wanted other people to succeed. And he was happy for other people. And he always had a warm smile and a positive, cheerful, optimistic attitude 
That's David Jenikov. And all these qualities, to have a good eye, to think about other people, and to be a good friend, this is David Jenikov. By the funeral in, uh, in Dallas, the shul was absolutely packed. And someone joked that the shul was fuller for his funeral than it was on Rosh Hashanah. And who were all these people? I thought I was David Jenikov's best friend. But I think everyone else in the room had that same feeling. He had a good heart. Including a good heart is to be a good friend. And he was an incredible friend. He was incredibly dedicated to his friends. I even read an obituary on plasticsurgery.com. My friend Bill sent me the obituary. And it it reads a quote from some head of some surgery something of America, Association of America. This was the quote. David was one of my closest friends and a respected colleague in plastic surgery. He made everyone feel like they were his best friend. But he was really he was really oriented to thinking about other people in, in, a, in an uncommon way. He really was thinking about other people. He lived for other people. I was thinking just, I was looking for this card. David wrote me a card last year. It was such a nice card. It was so kind and thoughtful. I actually saved the card. I was actually, I couldn't find it. I have it somewhere in my drawer. I couldn't find it. I wanted to read it again. But it was so nice. It was so thoughtful. He had a way of just making everyone else feel so special. But he really, he really lived for other people. Now, included in having a good eye, I say just tell us, is to be a good neighbor. Now, what does it mean to be a good neighbor? The one opinion talks about being a good friend. If you're a good friend, you'd imagine you'd be a good neighbor as well. So perhaps we can suggest that the idea of being a good neighbor is to be, is to be close and to be a good person, not just to the people who are distant from you, but also to the people who are closest to you. you know, some people, they have big ideas. They want to change the world. They want to improve all of humanity. Let's help the masses. Let's work on this project and that project. But unfortunately, the people that are closest to them sometimes are ignored or suffered. They're too busy with the big picture to sweat the little stuff. Not David. I don't think I could think of another person who was as caring and as dedicated to his family as David Jenikov. There was just nothing that he wouldn't do for his wife, his wife Lisa, and their four children, Michael, Max, Matthew, and Megan, and their significant others. He was always thinking about them. He was always like kind of monitoring where the, where they are, where they're at, what they need, what can I do for them? I'm going to have a heart-to-heart with this one. I think this one needs that. I'm going to try to get this person to speak to that one because that's what they need. He would really deeply think about what his children needed. He was attuned to the specific needs of each of his children. It was just so striking by the funeral, his four children, they all spoke really, really powerfully about their relationship with their father. But it was, it was amazing to see how each one of them had a completely different relationship. I don't know, really, but each one had a unique relationship with their dad. Each relationship was deep and was loving, but it was all different. Such a loving husband, such a doting father, such an adoring grandfather. He was dedicated to his family in an other way 
worldly fashion. He had a good heart. He had a heart that could incorporate everyone within it. He had a heart the size of Texas. That's David. There was so much love in it. He loved people. He loved helping people. He was sensitive and caring to people. You know, his occupation, his his job was was craniofacial surgery. So tragically, some people are born with deformities, and he would he would fix them up. But a couple of weeks ago, I remember we were talking, and he spoke with such passion about these people and how un- un- unfortunate they are. Such humanity, such caring, such a big heart for others. Just an incredibly special and refined and sterling soul. Caring for other people, living for other people, thinking about other people. David Jenikov really had a lave tov, a good heart. Now, if this is going to be a proper eulogy, it means that we all have to take away something from it. Now, to expect any one of us to undertake the workload that he had, it's, it's very hard for people to even dream about that. But perhaps we can all, those of us who are fortunate enough to know him and those of us that are just meeting him now, Perhaps we can all take something small from this giant who had such a good heart for other people. Perhaps we can all open up our heart a little bit more for other people. To emulate, to mimic David in some small way. To do something to keep that well, so to speak. Not the well of Miriam, but the well of David Jenikov flowing. So I have a suggestion. I remember hearing a long time ago, maybe 20 years ago, a long time ago, I was listening to a lecture. And the person was saying that, you know, we tend to be selfish. We're inward thinking. We care about ourselves. We don't care enough about others. And really what the Torah is trying to get us is to open our, open our hearts for other people. Not just for the people, but to open up our hearts, of course, for the Almighty. What the Yitzhah wants us to do is to live just for ourselves, to be cloistered up in our own little world, in our own little cocoon. All we care about is ourselves. But the objective of Torah is to open up our heart, to make us care for other people, to make us, of course, receptive to God on high. But by default, we're so self-absorbed. And we, we live, even though we're surrounded by other people, we actually live by ourselves. And that's, of course, a horrific indictment. So what this lecturer was saying, the Talmud says, just like every person has a different face, a different countenance, a different visage, everyone looks different, so too their personalities, their idiosyncrasies, their attitudes in every area of life are different. So what this lecturer was encouraging us is not to change everything overnight, not to become someone who lives completely for the people overnight, but at least notice the face of every person you encounter. Just notice the face. Just to, just to begin this process of starting to have a good heart to live for other people. So perhaps this is something small that we could all take away from our eulogy of David Gedalia ben Ephraim. You know, David spent his career mending people's faces, 
fixing people's distorted faces. People were born, God forbid, with cleft lips and other sorts of deformities on their face. David always noticed and took care of other people's faces. He made their faces look pleasant. And this really encompassed his whole life. He was living for the people. He noticed the people. He had a good heart for other people. He had this quality again that incorporates all the towers above all. He had a good heart. Let us take just the first page from his book. Let us follow his ways in just, just a little, a little step to live a little bit more for other people, just to start by noticing other people, noticing their face, noticing that they're all different. We're all different. We all have our own eccentricities. We all have different faces and we all have different personalities. And through that, maybe we too can take a little step in trying to emulate and to be inspired by David Gedalia ben Ephraim. May his soul be elevated in heaven. We extend our sincerest condolences to his wife Lisa, to Michael, to Max, to Matthew, to Megan. May the Almighty comfort you amongst the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem and may you experience no more pain. You all have massive shoes to fill. You saw your father, your husband's greatness up front, closer than anyone. He loved you with, with uncommon commitment. He's proud of all of you. But you have to know that now he cannot do any more mitzvahs. But every mitzvah that you do can help him. And thus he can actually vicariously do mitzvahs through you. When you say Kaddish, you elevate his soul. When you do a mitzvah, you elevate him in heaven. Every good deed, every action that you do, everything that you do to mimic and perpetuate the great legacy that he laid before you, that raises his status. May you continue to make him proud as he looks down from heaven upon you. Now, we usually end off the podcast with a question. I thought it would be fitting to read a Dvar Torah written by David. Most weeks, David wrote a Dvar Torah and he emailed it to his children. And occasionally, he would send it my way as well. So I looked through my emails and I found the most recent one that he wrote that I was included. I don't know if he wrote one more recently, but he wrote this just a few weeks ago. And it's such a powerful message and it's really befitting for the person who wrote it. So this is going to be the final segment of the podcast. He wrote, this is Parshas Beratius, so just a few weeks ago. Now that we are finished with Deuteronomy and Simchas Torah, we're starting the Torah all over again from Genesis, verse 1, chapter 1. When God creates the universe, etc., I am sure everyone has heard or read the story. On day six, God creates Adam and then Eve from his rib, so he will have a partner in the world and help taking care of the Garden of Eden. Prior to this, though, God created millions of animals, birds, cows, deer, fish, etc. However, he only created one Adam, a single being. Have you ever asked the question of why only one? This is the origin of the Jewish belief that every person is his or her own universe. 
and that each life is in fact a world upon itself. The expression, if you save a life, it is as if you save the entire world, comes from this concept of uniqueness. We are here with our own unique perspective. Set of skills, history, and exposures to complete our task here on earth, whatever it may be. Most often, we don't really know what that task is, but we need to push ahead regardless. We are each the unique player, the one player in our own universe that can achieve our respective goals and ambitions. It was as if God created the entire world just for each person. There are over 7 billion worlds all existing at the same time, but in different and unique ways. This level of uniqueness is further demonstrated in what Hashem says after Cain has murdered his brother Abel in the Parsha. Cain spilled the bloods of Abel, not just the blood. The rabbis conclude that the plural the plural bloods, corresponds to all the generations now cut off from the world that Abel would have created with his offspring. His uniqueness, in fact, our uniqueness, is passed down to our children and their children, etc. To further the point of the importance of one person and to imprint this concept further, one person can change the world and impact all the world around them. Abraham, Moses, David, Joan of Arc, Queens Victoria, and Elizabeth, Martin Luther King, and so on. So we must be ready. We must take our talents and achieve. We are each special and have a unique purpose in this world, which is why we are created in the first place. Be the lead player in your life and positively impact those around you. It's why you are here. Be ready to play the game. Have a great week, everyone. All the best. Signed, David Jenikov. Of course, these words are fitting to the one who penned them. I feel fortunate to have known him. I miss him. Everyone who knows him, everyone who had the great fortune, the great privilege to have known him, misses him. May his soul be elevated in heaven. As always, my address is rabbiwomajibba.com. Have a great week. Fantastic Shabbos. And please, God, we'll talk again next week.